Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. The word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. God, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to gather as your family. For the people in this room that might not feel that we are family, may we be your presence here and now. May we grant peace and grace and acceptance. God, for those of us in the room that are struggling not with the people sitting next to us, but maybe be struggling uh, with you, may we also be your presence here and now. May we bless and encourage. And after looking at your word this evening, we ask that we would be able to leave here encouraged to live for you encouraged to love our neighbor, encouraged to fight for those on the margins and to include them, and to remember the work that your son Jesus Christ has done. We pray these things all in his name. Amen. There's a lot of things I think that we take for granted as believers. A lot of times we come to the study of Scripture or we come into a building like this with a, with a preconceived idea of what faith is. And sometimes we forget that from very early on, faith was progressive over time. There was things that people were learning from the earliest days of communing with God that were not revealed to them clearly until much, much later. A lot of times we forget the development of the theology as it has gone over time. One of the things that we might forget is how important resurrection is. It seems especially that when we think about what happens to us after we die, a lot of us immediately create these narratives of us floating off without, but we're, we're disembodied and we're floating off into the celestial 
place somewhere up there, out there, where God is, and that's the end of it. We end up in heaven somewhere, and that's great, and those are the things that we look forward to, and we don't really necessarily think about resurrection or what it means or how important it is for us. Over the past few weeks, um, one of my pastoral duties, and this is also one of the family duties, is just being present for funeral services and um, the death of loved ones. And you will find out a lot about people's theology in the funeral procession line as people begin to make sense of what is going on in the world and what has happened in the life of these people, attempting to both figure out what it is that is now taking place beyond the grave and what it is that we as believers are looking forward to. And I would also posit that most of the time in those moments, we don't necessarily talk about resurrection. In the ancient world, resurrection was um, not something that was unanimously uh, believed. For most people, they had sort of similar ideas that we might, that when we die, our spirit goes somewhere, but there was no real connection with the body. It just dies and it decays and nobody really cares. In the Jewish world, however, there was a different form of understanding about resurrection, but this is one that was progressive over time. The things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus believed were not necessarily the things that were taught and believed from way back when. There was a development within Judaism with regard to what was important about resurrection. And we see certain texts in the Old Testament. There's not a lot of them. But certain texts in the Old Testament that talk about physical, bodily resurrection. After a, a saint dies, the reconstitution of their body would take place. And this was important for the Jewish believers, as we'll see um, over the course of time. But we have three texts from the Old Testament that I think it's important for you just to be aware of. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, it says, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. There is some time coming when dead bodies will rise. Now, there's questions about this passage in Isaiah, and there's questions about this next passage in the book of Ezekiel as to whether or not it has to do with individual believers who die and then are resurrected, or if this is a motif about Israel no longer in exile. Israel as a people has been cast out of the land. They have been kind of booted and they begin to doubt the promises that God has for them. Remember the promises way back when where God says, Abraham, you are my guy. I will make a people from you. Great nations will come from you. Kings will come from you and you will be a blessing to all of the world. But when Israel is removed from the land, the land of their inheritance, they begin to ask, does God even care about me anymore? And for some people who were wandering foreign lands, they would begin to process and begin to think about resurrection and how God would not fail the promises. In fact, he would be so, so complete in his promise that he would even raise one from the dead in order to vindicate himself and to bring his people back together. Not even death could hold them back. So we have this weird text in Isaiah and Ezekiel. The text in Ezekiel has this image of dry bones. It says, um, 
prophesy, Ezekiel, to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The image is of dead, dry bones somewhere out there and God bringing them back to life, covering them with with flesh and sinew and tendons, reconstituting the dead bodies into a people who will worship and become part of Israel. The clearest text in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel. For those of you that have spent time in church, you might hear the name Daniel and immediately you go to Daniel in the lion's den. You go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the people who would not bow down and were thrown into the fire. You might go to these stories about Daniel and his crew not eating the king's meat, and that might give you the the in that you need to say, see, I'm not so weird for being a vegetarian after all. You still are. I'm sorry. But you have these stories of of Daniel, these Sunday school stories that you would tell your kids, and then you fail to realize that the last half of Daniel is really, really, really weird. It's real weird. It goes from Daniel and the lion's den. It goes from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It goes from these cutesy stories into these really weird prophetic announcements. In the last half of the book of of Daniel, we see all sorts of of, um, apocalyptic prophetic texts. And we get this uh, bit here in Daniel chapter 12. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. This is the real important verse here. Multitudes who sleep. This is a euphemism for people that have died. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus and his ministry is really informed by Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 12. And we see some hints of that in his teaching here when he says there's going to be a resurrection and the people who do good will be resurrected to life and the people who don't do good will be resurrected to condemnation. And we see hints of this in the book of Daniel. The only reason why I raise these passages is not to confuse you because the Old Testament's really weird. Um, I just bring it up because there are a handful, a very small handful of texts in the Old Testament that seem to lead us towards resurrection. They seem to lead us towards God's promises being so important that he will not even allow his people to stay in the grave. No, he will raise them up so that his promises will remain true. I also have to tell you this story just because it's, it's out there. This is from the book of 2 Maccabees. In your daily readings, you probably won't come across 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees is from a collection of texts called the Apocrypha. Please say the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, sometimes we refer to that as the intertestamental period. You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, and right in the middle you have the intertestamental period, which is where we have the Apocrypha. And in 2 Maccabees, we hear really strange stories about, in this particular passage, about martyrs and why it was important for them um, to trust in God. This is how the story begins. There were also seven brothers who were arrested along with their mother. 
The king was trying to compel them to eat the forbidden pork by torturing them with whips and cords. We hear that, and it's Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, and you start thinking, bacon, pork loins, pulled pork sandwiches. Oh my goodness, the barbecue sauces. Will you go sweet heat? Will you go barbecue? Will you go Carolina? Will you go, you start thinking that. But remember, for an ancient Jewish person, this is not something that is clean. This is something that, that leads you into impurity so for a devout, pietistic Jewish person, they would not eat pork. Now, they're trying to compel these people to do that. One of them, speaking on behalf of the others, said, what do you hope to ask and learn from us? We are prepared to die rather than sin against our ancestral laws. The king becomes angry and commands, this is why, the Bible and its surrounding texts are dangerous and maybe not suitable for children at times. The king became angry and commanded, quote, frying pans and cauldrons to be heated. As soon as they were hot, he commanded that the one acting as spokesman have his tongue cut out, be scalped, and have his hands and feet cut off while the rest of his brothers and his mother watched. And this is what we see throughout 2 Maccabees chapter 7. We have these seven brothers who have this, this um, opportunity to rebel, to break the law, and to be okay, or to stand firm and remain in their faithful relationship with God and die as a consequence. The first brother um, is, is killed, and after that it says, after the first brother died in this manner, they led forward the second one with mockery. They, they ripped off the skin of his head along with his hair and demanded, will you eat before every part of your body is punished limb by limb? And he says, not at all. Therefore, this brother uh, received in turn the same punishment as the first with his last breath, he says, the quote on the screen here, with his last breath, he says, you who are marked out for vengeance may take our present life, but the king of the universe for whose laws we die will resurrect us again to eternal life. So you have early Old Testament, there's not much about resurrection happening. People aren't talking about it. And then later into the New Testament, once the exile happens and people are beginning to be judged, they start thinking, well, maybe God's promises are so good and so strong that even when we're booted from the land, he cannot forget us. In fact, even if we die here and now, he will reconstitute our bodies, resurrect us to new life, and we will begin to be in relationship with him yet again. And we see this in the later Old Testament texts and then in the intertestamental period right before Jesus shows up. We have weird stories about frying pans and martyrs and people saying, I will not eat your pulled pork sandwich. Instead, I will die for my beliefs because the king of the universe for whose laws we die will resurrect us again to eternal life. This is where their faith lie in this moment. And he writes, says, it was already a popular Jewish idea in Jesus's day that God would raise the dead. There would come a day, they believed, when God, who as the creator, 
was committed to bringing justice to his world. He would put everything to rights. This would involve bringing all evil under, under scrutiny and condemnation and vindicating all who had followed God's ways. Resurrection, it was about covenant. It was about the promises that God has made to his people. Resurrection was about vindication, making sure that God was good. We sing these lines all the time and maybe for some of you in the room, you struggle to say, you are good, you are good, oh, oh, because you might be dealing with something underneath the surface and you're struggling to figure out how good God actually is when my job stinks, when my relationships stink, when I have just suffered a miscarriage, when my family member has died, when I'm in the midst of financial ruin. How good is God in those moments? Resurrection says that even though you might die, I got you. Even though I might not vindicate you and your holiness now, I have not and I will not give up on you. Resurrection was about justice. It's about making sure that, that the right ways of God are proven to be right and good and just because this world's jacked up. And even the authors of the Bible know that and they begin to think perhaps if God is good, that it must go beyond the grave. Resurrection was about hope. Again, because the situations that people see themselves in now or back then, it wasn't filled with the good that we might want or that we might hope for, that we might see, but resurrection says the story is not finished yet. Nearly everyone, I put nearly in parentheses here, ne nearly everyone was on board. And really, I should have um, put another caveat in there. Nearly every Jewish person was on board with it. For the churched people, I'll talk to you just for 10 seconds. Remember the Sadducees? They're not the Pharisees, but they're the Sadducees because they're sad, you see. But ching, that's not really even true. They, they just didn't believe in resurrection. And they took Jesus to task on this throughout. Their theology did not include anything beyond the grave. It did, not re it did not include their bodies coming back to life. And that was their own separate thing. But nearly every Jewish person at this time was on board with resurrection. But here's the catch. For them, resurrection was not how Jesus talked about resurrection. Again, N.T. Wright says, no first century Jew prior to Easter, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, no Jew prior to this monumental moment expected resurrection to be anything other than a large-scale event happening to all of God's people or perhaps to the entire human race. John seems to push us in the, um, into the, to the side of the entire human race being raised to judgment, either to life or to death. No first century Jew prior to Easter expected resurrection to be anything other than, one, a large-scale event happening to all God's people as part of the sudden event in which God's kingdom would finally come on earth as in heaven. Every Jewish person would have um, been on board with this, and we see that from the book of John when Jesus is traveling to Bethany to, to minister to his friend Lazarus, who has died. He meets Martha in the road, and they have this interchange, and Jesus um, says to her, your brother will rise again, and Martha answers, I 
know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jewish people at this time, this is what they thought. Somewhere out there, something would happen and God would vindicate himself, make good on his promises to his people, and all Jewish folks would at least raise from the grave and be reconstituted and resurrected so that God could prove himself to be good. Jesus' note says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life now and will not be judged, but that person has crossed over from death to life now. Jesus again says, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For Jesus, it wasn't just a once for all moment somewhere out there in the future. Something different was happening. This is the picture that you have seen before. For the Jewish mindset in the first century, they would have divided time in this age and the age to come. And there's a moment that ushers in the age to come, namely the resurrection of the dead. The good work of the Messiah to usher in this age to come and also the resurrection. And what Jesus is saying by saying you have passed over from death to life now. And by saying a time has come and is here now. Jesus is screwing with the timeline. Watch it. He's taking the age to come and bringing it here and now. Phrased another way, he's taking heaven and bringing it to earth and saying something new is happening here. Resurrection is taking place amongst you now. And we see tidbits of this throughout the book of John, specifically with regard to the story of Lazarus. He goes down to Bethany. Lazarus has been dead for four days. The King James Version of the Bible says that he, quote, stinketh, which is funny. But he is dead upon dead upon dead. And Jesus gets the stone rolled away and he says, Lazarus, get out of there right now. And who comes strolling out of the grave? None other than Lazarus. Now, here's something you might not have caught. Lazarus is not resurrected. Lazarus is just kind of resuscitated. There's nothing different about Lazarus now, except for the fact that he was dead for a few days, and now he's not really dead for a few days. But he would later die. Jesus is giving hints that if you stick with him, you'll see crazy stuff, and heaven is coming to earth and resurrection is happening now and the age to come is invading this present age. For me, this is really significant. And we can see here again on this graph, Jesus' resurrection, it begins this process. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of this harvest that we will be a part of. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead confirms our own resurrection from the dead at some later point. You can see on the graph here that Jesus and his resurrection, it inaugurates this moment of this age slash the age to come. It inaugurates the moment where heaven is invading earth. It inaugurates the moment where the age to come is happening here and now. But at some point in the future, we too will receive this resurrection of the body. Who, Josh, who, who cares at all about what you're saying? It's cool that you're getting so worked up and sweaty. It is cool that you are diving around and making these crazy graphs. I get that. But who, Josh, who gives one rip 
what you are saying. Stay with me. My main man, N.T. Wright, says this. It's not merely that God had inaugurated the end. It's not merely that heaven is now invading earth. It's not merely that the age to come is now. It's not merely that the end is here in the present. That's not the point. If Jesus, the Messiah, was the end in person, if he was God's future arrived in the present, then those who belonged to Jesus, or we could say, then those who belong to Jesus and follow him and are empowered by the Spirit are charged with transforming the present as far as we are able in light of the future. The fact that heaven has come to earth and the age to come is invading the present and the fact that we follow Jesus and we align ourselves with Jesus and the fact that we believe that resurrection is happening, that means that we have been tasked with this monumental opportunity to bring heaven to earth for people who are experiencing hell on earth. We have been tasked with the monumental opportunity to care for our brothers and sisters, to love our neighbors and have it mean something. It's not just about us floating off into the ethereal space and hanging out with God in heaven. That's not the deal. The deal is resurrection. The deal is our bodies becoming reconstituted just like this place. It means that the things that we do here and now, they matter. The things that we care about here and now, they matter. The things that our bodies participate in here and now, they matter. The things that we suffer here and now, they matter. And God is redeeming this place for his good and for his glory, even if we can't see it. But we have been tasked with the opportunity to be a partner with him. I don't know what kind of gospel you were sold growing up. I don't know if it was believe this or else sort of gospel. I don't know if it was a believe this or else you're going to burn for all of eternity. That's not good news. Here's the good news. God is saying, I love you. I'm invested in you. I care about you. And I want you to do something for me right now. I want you to love the people around you like I love them. I want you to be a taste of heaven for them here and now. I want you to bring the kingdom. I want you to build for the kingdom. I want you to be the age to come that people can see right now in this moment. It's why I get all sweaty. It's why I jump around and scream at you like a crazy man. Because this, friends, is the gospel. If you have sold out just so, you'll be okay. Friends, you're missing it. If you have believed in Jesus just so you won't do X, Y, or Z, you're missing it. If you are not partnering with the king of the universe to bring about what is good, what is eternal, right now, you're missing it. It's not just about heaven and hell. I know that Jesus talks about these concepts a lot, and we don't have time to get into it. 
But I do know that you guys have a lot of baggage that are associated with these terms. And I'm going to just throw something, a wrench into your system. The way that your uh, ideas of those concepts, they might not be real biblical. They might be fueling you to walk a certain road that Jesus isn't asking you to walk. Instead, he's saying, don't worry about some of these things. Instead, love your neighbor. Care about the poor and the oppressed. Care about the widow and the orphan. Care about the homeless 50 yards away from here. Care about the person sitting in the seat next to you who is broken and suffering. And maybe, just maybe, do something for them. Not because of guilt, but because the love of God compels you to do that. That is when we begin to get a glimpse of what Jesus is offering us. It's not just about the end way out there because the end is invading the present. Resurrection says your life matters. Resurrection says that there is purpose in what is happening right now in your life. Resurrection says God has not given up on you, nor will God give up on you. Resurrection says that this place is going somewhere. It's not going to burn in a pile of fire as we all float off into heaven. That's not what's happening. Resurrection says there is hope. There is vindication. There is good that is happening and you get to be a part of it. Now, that's one aspect. Because over the last six to nine months, this is where I've been hanging out. And I feel like the sermons have been leaning a bit towards, we need to be the people that God is asking us to be. You know what I mean? They've been leaning on, we've heard it this way, but now we're thinking about it in this way. And that demands something from us. And what I don't want to do is to create a moralistic uh, application of the gospel where we leave here every week thinking, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to earn, I've got to earn, I've got to go in this direction. That's not where we're at, okay? So for some of you, before we advance to how can I partner with the God of the universe in bringing heaven to earth, how about we stop here for a moment? For some of you in the room, how about you allow yourself to experience heaven on earth right now through the love of your neighbor, through the love of your community, through the people who are, are committed to you, to the people who will rally around you in the midst of your suffering, to the God who has not left you or abandoned you or forsaken you. Perhaps you can open yourself up this evening to accepting the love that he is offering you that is not conditional upon anything that we say or do. Perhaps we can just accept this divine, radical, unconditional love that God is offering to his people. Perhaps when I say you are a beloved child of the Most High God, you begin to say, yes. Perhaps that is something that forms you and transforms you from the inside out so that when you see a neighbor who is broken and hurting, so that when you see injustice happening on your watch, so that when you see something that the King of the universe is nudging and compelling you to work towards, perhaps we can be so informed by the love that God has for us that we will be brave and courageous enough to say, I'm in. Whatever you have for me, God, I will do. 
Resurrection doesn't just guilt you into doing more stuff. Resurrection gives us hope and purpose and calling, knowing that God's love is so vast that not even death can separate us from him. May we go this evening in the bold knowledge that God not only calls us to partner with him, but God desperately wants you because he loves you, he cares about you, and he has not given up on his people. Resurrection says there is hope and there is a future and there is a plan for you. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.